Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Out of thankfulness to God for giving us his word. At the end of the reading, I will conclude by saying, this is the word of the Lord, and invite you to respond, thanks be to God. Today's scripture reading is from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1-4. through 4. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would of you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive unfading crown of glory. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, thanks, Cadence. And you guys can grab a seat. Uh, good morning once again. Good to be with you all. Hope that you're doing well today. Uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, this is going to be a little bit of a, a different service for us as we uh, formally appoint uh, three new pastors uh, here at the King's Church. Um, so let me give you kind of uh, the outline for the morning, and then we'll jump into this. Uh, I'm going to give you a brief overview, which is my way of saying a short sermon. I'm going to do the best I can to give you a very short sermon out of 1 Peter 5 uh, related to pastoral ministry and what it is that we're appointing uh, Rob and Andrew and David to uh, today. Uh, after that, you're going to have a chance to actually hear from those three men. That was really uh, encouraging to me during the first service. So I think it's going to be encouragement to you as they share kind of their calling to this work and an exhortation to you uh, here at the King's Church. Uh, then we'll have them take a series of vows and commitments to you all. And then we're going to invite all of their families up here to the stage with uh, Pastor Pat and myself. We'll lay hands on them and pray for them and commission them for this work uh, as we go. So that is where we're headed. Uh, but I do want to say this. In, in all of this this morning, we're not here just to honor these three men and to celebrate this occasion for our church, though we certainly will do so. We are still here in order to worship Jesus. Because after all, this is his church. He is the one who is overseeing its health, its unity, and its growth. Jesus is the one that promises that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Christ is the head of the body and the one who holds it all together, which is why he is worthy of our worship. So this morning, our goal here is still to worship our Savior and our King who is worthy of it. But in his design, and as we're going to see in his word, he has given his church the gift of pastors to serve the body in order to push them and challenge them and to pastor them toward growth and maturity in Christ. So as we step into this moment together, here's kind of the big idea I want us to see in my brief time from 1 Peter. Faithful pastors are a gift to the church and a picture of the chief shepherd. Faithful pastors are a gift to the church and a picture of the chief shepherd. Before we jump in, though, let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, we uh, come before you this morning uh, in the midst of the chaos of the world that we live in, uh, the chaos of our own lives, the uncertainty uh, that lies before each of us individually and just in our world right now, we feel the weight of that. And in the midst of all of that, we pause and we come before you today to say thank you. Thank you that you have provided more pastors for our flock here. Uh, thank you that you have seen fit to bless our church in this way. And Lord, I pray today as we open your word to understand what it says about leaders in the church. We know there's so much confusion about this uh, in the church and out there in the world. I pray that you would give us a fresh insight into what it means to be the church, 
to be pastured well, not just by the shepherds of this flock, but ultimately by you, Jesus, as the chief shepherd. So give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to respond to the good news of the gospel. Help us feel safe and secure in you, our good shepherd. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so my version of a short sermon is going to be six brief observations about pastoral ministry from 1 Peter 5. I already see some eye rolls, but listen, we were on it first service. We moved, okay? So six brief observations about pastoral ministry from 1 Peter 5. All right, number one is this. Pastors serve in a plurality. Peter begins by saying, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. Now, I love the humility from Peter here. Peter, one of the 12 disciples of Jesus, later an apostle, one of those who was the foundations of the church, views his role as a fellow elder. Now, our conviction here at the King's Church is that the different terms you see in the New Testament, which primarily are overseer, pastor, or elder, are each referring to the same role. We use them interchangeably here, often talking about elders and pastors, pastors and elders. But I want us to see and appreciate here from Peter is he's exhorting the fellow elders amongst the churches that he is writing to in the plural. And this is consistent with the rest of the New Testament. You see, the concept of elder or pastor always appears in a plurality. I've said it before and I'll say it again. There is no one-man wolf pack pastor in the Bible. There is a team of pastors that oversee and shepherd the church. Elders are to serve together in a team. In God's good design, I think there's great wisdom and protection in this. Just think about it practically. It allows for truly shared leadership, increased accountability, a better balance of strengths and gifts and weaknesses. It also protects an individual elder and a congregation from particular sins and weaknesses. The first thing I want us to see is that pastors serve in a plurality. In fact, we waited years to plant this church until we had a plurality. So first thing. Second thing is this. Pastors serve in the context of suffering. Pastors serve in the context of suffering. Keep going in verse 1. Peter says, And a witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. One of the dominant themes in 1 Peter is suffering. How do we suffer well in the Christian life? We should expect it. We know it's coming. How does it work? Well, his exhortation given to these pastors is in that context. Peter does not envision pastors leading from some kind of ivory tower, strategizing from behind the scenes where they're safe from the danger and the real action happening out there in the world. No, to put it plainly, serving in pastoral ministry is a call to stand on the front lines of suffering and opposition. It is a call to stand on the front lines of suffering and opposition. I don't say that, by the way, for sympathy or pity for these men or for Pastor Pat or for myself. I say it because it is a reality, and I think it's an invitation for us all to pray for our pastors. And this suffering and opposition could come from varying sources. In Peter's day, it was uh, oppression, marginalization, slandering from the Greco-Roman world. It would soon uh, become persecution under Emperor Nero. Now, that's not our context here, but in many ways, all of pastoral ministry is a front row seat to suffering and opposition. Pastors experience the highs and lows of life in an exaggerated way. Here's what I mean by that. It is truly one of the greatest joys of my life, getting to see up close and personal you all grow in your faith, 
You all use your gifts to build up the body, to see prayers answered, to be there for big life moments, for your weddings, for the birth of children, for adoptions, for those big goals that only God could deliver, he delivers. That's a joy. But pastors, good pastors, are not just there for the high moments, but also the hard moments. Right? They're up close and personal with you for the hard stuff of life. They walk beside you in sin, sickness, disappointments, setbacks, death of a loved one, crisis moments, and what feels like impossible situations. That is a burden that comes in pastoral ministry. I love one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. It comes in 2 Corinthians 11. Paul is listing all of his sufferings as a pastor and as an apostle. And then he says this in verse 28. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. That's a pastor's heart right there. There is a pressure, a daily pressure and anxiety for the flock, for how you all are doing. It's a beautiful burden that we get to carry, but it does come with hardships and suffering. And brothers and sisters, this is what these men are signing up for. This is what we have all signed up for who are serving in this role. But we ought never to forget this suffering and opposition is a picture of Christ. It's a picture of Christ. The Christian life is one of suffering now and glory later. All of us experience that, and pastors model that for the church. So pastors serve in a plurality. They serve in the context of suffering. And then thirdly, they shepherd the flock. Verse 2, Peter says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Now, our word for pastor is a Latin word that literally means shepherd. That's the primary metaphor for ministry in the scriptures, and I love that metaphor. Pastors are not fundamentally CEOs or CFOs or entrepreneurs or business le- visionary leaders with business plans or stand-up comedians or whatever you might think they are. Fundamentally, at the end of the day, pastors are those who shepherd a flock of sheep. It's a beautiful metaphor. This metaphor entails four things. Good shepherds, first of all, know the sheep. They know the sheep. Pastors, as a shared team, know the lives of their flock. They know their names, their stories, their strengths, their vulnerabilities, and they walk beside you. They lead you to green pastures where you find rest. Good shepherds, as the mantra goes, ought to smell like their sheep. Shepherds know their sheep, but they also feed the sheep. In overseeing the diet of the flock, they must bring the whole counsel of God's word to bear in all of life. And that happens in both formal and informal ways. Good shepherds also lead the sheep. Peter says they ought to exercise oversight. They ought to organize the church in an effective manner so that we stay on mission. We ensure the body is functioning together, that people are using their gifts to build up the body of Christ. We equip the saints for the work of ministry. So good shepherds know, feed, lead the sheep, but they also protect the sheep. I don't know if you know this, but sheep are vulnerable. They're not like alpha predators. That'd be pretty cool if you thought about that, but they're not. They're vulnerable. And so good shepherds are alert. They're watchful for influences that will lead the sheep astray. They guard the flock from false teaching and false teachers. They warn and refute where it's needed. They step into division and seek to bring the reconciling gospel to bear. They go after wayward sheep and bring them back to the fold. But in all this, don't miss, this is merely a stewardship. 
I love what Peter says. Did you catch it? Shepherd the flock of God. This is not our church. This is Jesus' church. Pastors are humble stewards of what belongs to God and that which came at a precious price. In Acts 20, Paul is exhorting the Ephesian elders, and he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his blood. Do you know how valuable you are as a sheep in God's flock? He obtained you by his own blood. He laid down his very life so you might be brought into the fold by grace and grace alone. All right, number four, moving quickly, pastors are called. Pastors are called men. Peter says, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Pastors ought to have a holy desire, an aspiration toward this work. There should be a clear conviction tested over time that they are called by God himself to this role. I mean, Acts 20 just said it. The Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Which means this calling can't happen in a vacuum. It happens in the midst of a people and a place. Which is why aspirations for pastoral ministry should be submitted and vetted and affirmed by other pastors and by a congregation. This is why we have a process for this that quite frankly takes a lot of time. This is why we had you, if you're a member here, give feedback on these nominees and why we require a member vote of affirmation. At the bottom of this call is an eagerness to serve the church out of love for Christ and his people and no other motivation. Fifthly, pastors are examples. Verse 3, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Now, in order to be an example and to lead by example, pastors must be qualified. In the places in Scripture where they talk about the qualifications for elders and overseers, such as 1 Timothy 3, Titus chapter 1, they overwhelmingly, in fact, only one thing does not deal with their character. The qualifications for leading Jesus' church is to have a character that is Christ-like. And importantly, this does not mean that elders are perfect men. It's not realistic, nor is it healthy for us to have that expectation. But it does mean they're repentant men. They are those who, by God's grace, live above reproach in their lives. They're faithful faithful husbands and fathers. They're wise and discerning in their judgments. They live with self-control. They're courageous, yet gentle. They're not lured away by worldliness. They maintain a good reputation. They should exhibit a steady, ordinary predictable faithfulness. Now, that's not real flashy to the world, but you know what it is? It's a picture of Christ. It's a picture of Christ to the flock. They exhibit the very character of Jesus in this way. And lastly, number six, pastors are under shepherds to the chief shepherd. Verse four, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Here's the bottom line. The best pastors acknowledge that they are first and foremost sheep themselves, that they belong to the flock of God, and they are in need of a shepherd who leads them. See, one day, those of us who serve as pastors, the scriptures tell us we will stand before the chief shepherd. We will stand before Jesus himself and give an account for how we shepherded his flock 
and what ultimately belongs to him. That's a sobering reality. That's a weighty reality. But notice, Peter means this as an encouragement. Pastors ought to shepherd the flock in a way where you are prepared to meet your chief shepherd because of their leadership. And we do this by leading as Jesus leads. And how does he lead? How does the chief shepherd oversee his flock? Well, in John 10, when Jesus says that he is the good shepherd, it's because he lays down his life for the sheep. He's not a hired hand who doesn't care for his flock. No, he left the comforts of heaven to come running after us when we were wayward sheep who wanted nothing to do with him. He is gentle and lowly in heart, inviting all who are weary and heavy laden with sin and suffering to come to him and find rest as he shepherds his flock. See, pastors as under-shepherds are to point you back to that reality and that hope over and over and over again. That's our job description. Pastors are not the hope. Jesus is the hope. Good pastors will point you to him over and over and over again. And listen, when that happens, it's a massive gift to the church. It is a gift to the flock. So church, this morning, I can assure you that our deepest desire as under-shepherds here at the King's Church is to prepare you to meet the chief shepherd, the one who shed his own blood to obtain salvation, to bring you back into the fold of God. Under-shepherds help sustain you until the day that we await our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is pastoral ministry. So I'm going to pause and I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite Rob and then Andrew and then David to come up and share with you guys for a few minutes. So let's pray. Uh, Jesus, we thank you that you are the chief shepherd that you are the one who is the head of the body. You are overseeing your church and you have promised its growth. You are calling us home to yourself and you will sustain us for the journey. You have been faithful and you will prove yourself to continue to be faithful. Thanks for this moment where we get to celebrate the fact that you have called more men to shepherd the flock here at the King's Church. We know that that is just a massive advantage to us here. So God, may we receive this gift with grateful hearts and may it stir up our affections ultimately for you. May we have a greater glimpse of the good news of the gospel by the way that the sheep here at the King's Church are led, by imperfect but repentant men who are seeking to be under shepherds of you. So bless these brothers as they share now. We pray that in Jesus' name. Hello. There it is. Well, good morning. Um, man, grateful to be here with you all as we come together, as we worship, as we um, move to this next season in our church's life. Um, I'm honored. I'm blessed to be a part of it. And so what I wanted to do today is just give you a little bit of my story and some quick observations there, as well as what I'm praying for and hoping for as a church as I enter into um, ministry with these godly men. And so um, my story of how I came to know the person of Jesus Christ is unremarkable from my perspective or what I bring to the table. Basically, my testimony can be summarized like this. I was blind and now I see. 
I was dead in my transgressions and sins, but God, who is rich in mercy, he made me alive in Christ. He breathed life into my lungs, and he did it for his name's sake. And so I knew that when God saved me, that the grace I was shown, that I wanted to be about telling people about that. I felt very specifically God calling me to full-time ministry. That wasn't something I necessarily was seeking because I thought I didn't have a lot to offer God. And now I know that um, some of you may have life verses. My story is I don't really have a life verse. The whole of scripture that in God's kindness through different seasons of my life, he has taken certain passages and have really just illuminated them to show me his goodness. And I want to point to one of those at this point in my story. And this comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 through 31. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so, you see, I had a misunderstanding about the call of God on my life. I thought, God really can't use me because I don't have a lot to offer. I don't bring a lot to the table. I'm not musically inclined. I am not the best speaker or teacher or preacher. I often say the wrong thing at the wrong time. I'm known for sticking my foot in my mouth often. But this passage is not some self-deprecating view of myself. It's not a way for me to be cheeky, but yet it is to show that God called me because of the fact that I am weak. That God wasn't in heaven saying, I'm gonna build my church and I'm going to start picking my team. If you think about a schoolyard pick for dodgeball or whatever sporting event in grade school, you know, everyone's lined up and the captains are choosing. And God's not choosing, like, the best of the best. And then at the end, here's Rob. And he's like, yeah, I guess I'll take that guy. But no, what God did is that he said, I am going to put my grace upon him. And in his weakness, I will show my faithfulness so that when people see his posture before God, before the world, that they will praise his Father in heaven. And so that's my story. That's what God has called me to do. And so in the similar way as in our uh, CBR readings not too long ago through the Gospel of John, the story of the woman of Samaria, the woman at the well, Jesus' encounter with her stuck out to me. Because here's a woman who, in her shame, understands that she's not really a part of society. She doesn't have a lot to offer. So she goes in a part of the day that she wouldn't be seen, but yet Jesus is there providentially to meet her. And so Jesus starts this relationship and trying to prod her heart. And she, every step of the way, is stiff-arming him, pushing him, trying to keep him at arm's distance. And he reveals her sin to her, and she says, I perceive you're a prophet, and yet he still doesn't leave. He changes her life all the while knowing the very sins that she's trying to hide. That's the love of the Father, that he sees our sins and he still chooses to be with us. He still chooses us to show his glory. 
And then after that encounter, that woman is changed and she goes and tells everybody about this person. She says, come, th come see this man who told me everything I did. Could this be the Christ? Now we have the scriptures, but our story's still the same. That God knows us, he loves us, he cares for us. He has revealed himself, he's died on the cross for our sins. And even though we stumble, even though we fall in sin, he chooses us anyway. We can't out the love of God. And so now we too, we go and we tell others, come see this man who knows everything about us and yet still died for us. That while we were enemies, while we were weak, that Christ died for us. Not because we had a good scouting report that he chose us, but all of those read enemy of God and in his love he chose us. So church, what I'm praying for us is exactly how that passage in John ends. That the people that she told came and encountered Jesus and no longer did they believe because of the woman's testimony, but they believed because they had experienced the Savior. So my prayer for us is that wherever you are, whatever station in life, if you think you have a lot to offer Christ or none at all, you know the scriptures, you know the Savior, and you go and you take that message of hope and love. You lead people to the foot of the cross and allow our Savior, our King Jesus, to meet them and to save them just as he did us. Thanks, church. How's everyone doing? There's a lot of faces I don't recognize. My name's Andrew, and it is truly by God's grace that I'm standing here with you this morning. My story, well, not my story. My story begins several more years ago. My mom's here. She knows. It began before this, but uh, eight years ago, I was running away from God, running in the opposite direction of God, seeking uh, anything and everything I thought would bring me fulfillment and pleasure. And around this time, uh, I had been raised in the church, and, uh, but I was always outside the church looking in at people and saying, wow, look at these people. They need a crutch. Look at that crutch they need. Um, I never really understood the point of it. And then the summer of 2013, all this began to change. I owned a business at the time and it was failing. At the same time, my father was dying. And all the while, the Lord was working through these circumstances to wake me up of my deep need of Jesus and my misconception of the gospel. See, I thought the gospel up until that point was a crutch, and I was wrong. It's not a crutch. It is a gurney. There is no hobbling along while working on your self-salvation with the other leg. It is a laying down of one's life on the finished work of Christ. So in the fall of 2013, I surrendered my life to Christ. And for the final few months of my father's life, uh, when he was committed to bed rest, uh, as he was on his literal deathbed, my brother, myself, and our older brother would go in and we would read scripture to him. He found great comfort in the scriptures. He was a man of God. And as he was unresponsive, he began, his lungs began to fail. They filled with blood, and he was coughing a lot. He could no longer speak. And I was reading Paul's letter to Timothy, my father, 
uh, wasn't able to communicate, but he began to cough. I leaned over to my father, and I adjusted his pillow, propped him up in the bed, went back to read to find that blood uh, actually fell on the pages of this Bible. And 2 Timothy 3.14 landed on this verse. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. These verses go on to describe how all Scripture is profitable for our equipping, they say to be ready to preach the word in season and out of season, to reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Then in verse 6, I was reading this, and as I see my father here, goes on to say this in verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And it occurred to me, sitting there beside my father, that this is what I wanted. Not a flash in the pan, but to finish. I saw him fighting the good fight, keeping the faith finishing the course so well that it inspired me to do the same, to follow and imitate his course of life as he followed and imitated Christ. This is what I desire for my children, and this is what I desire for us as a faith family here at the King's Church, that we would fight the good fight, that we would keep the faith, and that we would finish the race. So my prayer for us is that we would be known by our love, that in a world of polarization and disunity and hatred, we would be known by our love, that we would speak the truth and love to one another, that our love would be full of truth-seeking together as a family, that we would have a thick, thick, anybody know what zoysia grass is? Brandon does. Zoysia grass, thick culture of grace here, where anyone can walk in and we know that the love of Jesus is a profound reality that meets us where we are. We'd have a thick grace culture. I pray that we would be known by our faith, that the gospel truths would sink into our bones. So if you cut me, I'm going to believe the gospel, that each one of us would be able to say that, that we'd be faithful ambassadors here in Lakeland, Florida, that would be able to be defined by living hope, by a real hope that many would ask in the midst of all of the chaos of the world, why are you so hopeful? And we can give them a reason for the hope that lies in us. Because Jesus is risen, the grave is empty, and he is king. And all of this by the grace of God. We will begin by grace, that we'd be sustained by grace, and then by God's grace we would finish the race. These brothers, myself, we are not professionals. We are not performers. We are not pulpiteers. We're not motivational speakers. We are but servants. We are disciples. We are sinners in need of the grace of God. And so we do all these things. We walk all of these things out together. 
So I look forward to walking alongside you, laughing with you, crying with you, suffering with you, and doing all this to the glory of God. And know that we will be, uh, by God's grace, we will be ready to preach the word in season and out of season. And that we will pray for you all without ceasing. Real quick, I do want to thank my wife. I'm going to read it so I don't just like cry like I did in the first service. You have stood beside me faithfully through the highs and lows. We were both lost together. God is good. Your heart for the work of ministry inspires and challenges me. I am simply not here, standing here, without your sacrificial love. Your love of Jesus moves me to love and good works, and I'm grateful for you. Thank you, church. Love you. So good. Man, what a, what a blessing it is to serve alongside these guys and, uh, and even to hear their testimonies for the first time. Um, I want to say thank you to uh, Pastor Ian and Pastor Pat and for the King's Church for allowing me this opportunity to be able to serve alongside of you in ministry. Many of you know who I am, my family, um, but I want to share a little bit more about why I'm sitting here this morning. Uh, I'm a PK, if you don't know what that means, I'm a preacher's kid, so I was raised uh, in a Christian family. Boy, I was in church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, visitation Saturday, weddings, funerals, I was expected to be there. Um, so I knew the, the right words, I knew the, the right actions to stay under the radar. But it wasn't until my senior year in high school, on a school bus in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, whoop, whoop, shout out there, the twos. Um, and I was looking out the window, and the Holy Spirit just convicted my heart of, of a clear understanding of what my sins uh, do, and that is separate me from this holy, righteous, loving Father. And right there on the school bus, I was like, Lord, it's grace and grace alone that I'm saved. That place my faith in you. There's nothing that I can do. There's nothing that I can do to earn this salvation and was saved that night on a school bus. Made a little awkward as I was crying there on the bus. The guy beside me was like, man, what is, what is wrong with you? And I was like, man, let me just tell you what happened. Anyway, um, probably too many details, but that's okay. Um, shortly after that, I went on my first uh, mission trip to Venezuela, played baseball, used that as an opportunity to be able to share the gospel. And it was clear to, uh, it was, became very clear after that trip that wherever the Lord directed me and led me, that it would have to be somehow attached to um, outreach and international missions. And the cool thing about that was that the Lord was working in my future wife's heart in the same way as we met years later in the copier room in a uh, Christian organization. And 21 years later, uh, we still serve together in that same, same mission. And um, praise God for that. God is good. Um, in 2010, our family went to Central Asia to help with uh, some friends that were church planning in, a, in an area of unreached people groups called the Kham Tibetans. And during that experience, during that opportunity to serve in that, in that area of the world, we witnessed miracles. We witnessed the presence of God in a way that um, made us long for more. Um, we came back and we felt called as a family, full-time ministry. 
and was able to serve the Lord in, in different roles as, um, as a missions pastor, associate pastor um, here in Lakeland, and then uh, transition and compassion. And so thankful to be able to stand here today as an elder. And um, praise God for that. I'm just excited about how God will continue to use the King's Church. You know, my prayer, my uh, desire, and it's, I think it's all of ours, is that we continue to see the King's Church proclaim and declare the gospel. Um, here in Dixieland, uh, here in the city, here in, in our state, in our nation, and, and to the nations. And as a reminder of our vision and our mission here at the King's Church, we are an outpost of the kingdom. And that common thread through all these testimonies is pointing people to the hope and the hope that can be found in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. That is why we are here. We have hope in Jesus Christ. Don't ever forget who you are in Christ. Your personal identity is in Christ, right? You are a child of the King. And praise God for that. Thank you again for letting me serve alongside of you.